The Fabulous Man, Part Two. In the package that his supervisor opened was a green snake with red eyes, and when he peered into the open package, it struck him at his throat, embedding its fangs into his neck and envenomed him. It did not kill him, it was quickly found, but it turned his skin all over the same grass-green color as the snake and made his pupils vividly red. Immediately he fired Richard. Immediately Bo quit his employment also, loudly and proudly, blaming his mother for the whole affair, while the supervisor, all over green and red-eyed, spluttered. Having such an off-putting appearance and having caused the termination of the founder's son, the supervisor himself was dismissed by his superiors within the hour, and senior management consulted on the crisis. A mitigating message from the firm, with profuse apologies, was carried by a solemn procession of its senior management, but unfortunately it did not arrive to inform Mrs. Poofle before her son and Richard burst upon the surprised household. Having stopped first at their carriage, where a package awaited him, as the receipt in his pocket had foretold, Richard had changed his clothing and appearance. He was not recognized by the menial household. A black cloak about his slight shoulders emboldened his frame. A long and hooded cloak, like those worn by rivermen along the Chicago canals to ward off foggy damp and drizzle. But elegant as a gentleman should wear. Satin, with an opalescent sheen like the back of a raven, lined with the tissue of crimson silk. He faced them haughtily, masked with a black scarf into which he had scissored eye-holes. With imbued dash and grace, he swept his broad-brimmed feathered hat with magnificent gesture and generous bow, and announced his intentions to rob them. But because Bo was with him, and evidently mystified by this familiar stranger, his threats seemed a jest, and the cooks and men-servants laughed out loud even as they were cheerfully locked into the cellar. The bandits bounded up the marble staircase to her elegant bedchambers, where Mrs. Poofle was found lounging upon her oriental chaise. Madame, the masked man declared, leaping into the room and dramatically flipping his raven cloak, draping it back to expose the silky crimson upon his shoulder, revealing a gleaming silver pistol, his hand upon its holstered hilt. If you shall willingly part with your jewels, you shall not unwillingly part with your life. Don't be silly, his grandmother said, stroking her lapdogs. Mother, this is serious, Bo said, appearing behind the masked man. No, it's not, she replied. Whatever it is, it's not serious. He? We mean to rob you, truly, Bo pleaded. Certainly you do, but it's not serious. As she stood up, she let the lapdogs slide off her lap to run to the masked man, to scamper about him, barking at him, to nip at his boots, leaping upon him and snagging his raven cloak, 
drawing it off his shoulders. I know you intend to rob me, but I do not care. She had strode to her vanity, and seating herself before her mirror, and first adjusting her hair, her eyebrows smoothed with a wetted finger, she lifted a velvet box from the tabletop and bore it to her son. Here, Boo-Boo, do not lose them. The masked man bowed to her and declared, You have chosen wisely, madam. You are an ass, she said, and returned to her chaise, her dogs following, yipping. His gun went off. She collapsed to the carpet. Beau was stunned. The masked man hesitated at the door and solemnly observed, Life is tragedy. Beau backed out of the room, appalled by his mother's body upon the floor. The dogs, yipping, chased them, as both now fled down the stairs to their waiting steeds. The procession of senior management arrived, as two men on horseback sped from the mansion. It was they who found the body of Mrs. Poofle. It was they who called the police. Mr. K. Yauti told the masked man. He flatly and indignantly refused to pay the proposed $1,000 for Mrs. Poofle's jewels. Two dollars, he said, and that's more than they're worth. Beau took them back from Mr. Yauti's dismissive examination and placed them reverently back into the velvet box in which his mother had presented them to him, holding it as more precious by grievous memory of her. The masked man immediately realized he had been bamboozled. Beau felt hurt and uncertain what it meant. The masked man embraced his shoulder and comforted him. We shall do what we must. We will prevail. And sweeping his raven cloak back with flourish, flaring the crimson lining, he held open the door of the dingy pawn shop for his companion. Let us away, my brother. In the weeks and months following, in the confiding gloom of this shabby shop, amongst the sinister slums of the south side of Chicago, Yot took such meager traffic of stolen objects that he might wish to take from the masked man and his faithful companion. For stolen magazines from the public library, he paid nothing. A purse that was snatched when unattended yielded some miserable tokens of cash and a few common items of trite value to pawn. A few fumbling efforts at house burglary, beginning first, of course, with their own home and so pawning their own furnishings, increased their confidence. 
but dogs barking whenever they went to other darkened houses reminded them of Mrs. Poofle and her sad demise and put them off of that crime too. Feeling sorry for them, Yote encouraged them and guided them, advising Dick and Dumb as he called them to their faces as well as to his sleazy coterie upon the development of their naive criminal career. For his own entertainment and for his appreciative audience, he read aloud the numerous newspaper accounts of their exploits. He clipped a few to keep them. He made a scrapbook of them. They were so notable. Masked Man Foiled At the Tiffany Jewelers on Superior and Madison, a masked man threw a brick into the display window. The brick bounced back, hit him in the head, and knocked him out cold. However, before police could arrive, a large, well-dressed man, presumed to be his accomplice, had dragged him off the street. A search of the vicinity proved fruitless. Not what he ordered. A large, well-dressed man walked into the famous Berghof German restaurant downtown this Sunday morning, flashed a gun, and demanded cash from its maitre d' Gustav Mahler. The maitre d', a long-time and distinguished employee, flatly turned him down because he said he was not permitted to open the cash drawer without a food order. When the man ordered sauerbraten, the maitre d' insisted such a dish was never served for breakfast. The man, frustrated, walked away. Police were called, but a search of the vicinity proved fruitless. Mass bandit strikes again. On Friday, at its closing hour, the masked man and his faithful companion attempted to commit robbery at the Merchant's Bank in Oak Park on Main Street. The two tried to enter, but the notorious scarlet cloak worn by the masked man got stuck in the revolving doors. Frustrated, they left and returned a few minutes later. This time, not wearing his famous cloak, the masked man and his stout companion penetrated the doors and announced their intention to take $10,000. Remembering them from a few minutes earlier, customers and employees of the bank laughed hysterically, thinking it was a joke. The men evidently thought that the people were laughing because they were demanding too much money. Eventually, the men reduced the amount of money they wished to take to $1,000. When that didn't work, they demanded $100. Soon the men were demanding $1 each. When the laughter continued, the two decided to get away while it was safe. However, once again they got stuck in the revolving door, as one pushed one way and the other the opposite, until a customer, pitying them, helped them to escape. The unidentified customer was subsequently arrested when the police arrived, but released at the insistence of the bank manager, who believed the whole matter must have been a prank. A search of the vicinity proved fruitless. Masked man foiled again. Companion shot. The masked man and his stout companion, notorious to Chicago, recently attempted robbery of the First Bank of Durand, Wisconsin. The erstwhile robbers entered the bank waving revolvers. One shouted, Nobody move! When his partner moved, the masked man shot him. They fled together, the smaller man bearing the larger man to his horse. A posse was mounted, however, a search of the vicinities proved fruitless. Although I don't move easily, it has occurred to me transformations in the air are the heavens transparent.
to show me this new thing, or has it always been Richard was arraigned in Oak Park for the theft of Mrs. Poofle's jewels, but she declined his prosecution, preferring instead that he be extradited to Durand, Wisconsin, for the murder of her son. That he had turned himself into the authorities at Oak Park after bearing home the body of his companion for burial, and that he had expressed his remorse profoundly, did not move the jury which had been rather persuaded by the heartbreaking testimony of Mrs. Poofle that Richard bore secret lifelong malice toward her hapless benighted son, was a felonious deceiver, a bastard, who, though brought up by her as her own, had betrayed her and him, and returned human kindness with inhuman cruelty, theft, attempted murder of her own person, and now, alas, cold-blooded murder of the one who had always loved him. For none could believe it was folly or misadventure that had turned his hand upon his would-be brother. He was sentenced to death. From his pawn shop in Chicago, Mr. Yote followed the trial and the accounts of his hanging as they were reported in the newspaper. It was from among these that he clipped this final account of his execution. Masked Man Takes Flight Convicted of the murder of his faithful companion, late of Oak Park, and the local scion of the Poofle fortune, the fabulous Masked Man faced his execution this evening at six o'clock, when a large package and an envelope was received by Urgent Express from a mercantile of Chicago. While the package was being examined by the sheriff and his deputies, the steward, bearing his last meal, gave to him the envelope, which, unbeknownst to the authorities, contained explosive agents of an unknown element. Speculations among the agency have narrowed to the sort of chemical apparatus as a conjurer might employ, such as flash paper or the like. The sudden shock of a deafening explosion and the blinding light stunned the sheriff, his deputies, and the steward, whose hair was singed off in the blast. When come to, they found the jail cell empty, and the masked man escaped. He had recovered his famous mask, his satin cloak, and silver pistol, which had been retained for evidence in his recent trial. He had taken the mysterious large package. A posse was assembled, but just as they were horsed and made ready to depart, the masked man was spied by all upon the roof of the courthouse, wherein the jailhouse resides. Standing upon the clock tower, the masked man was seen, having dressed himself with enormous wings, which Sheriff reported had been the sole contents of the mysterious package. And while they shot at him, the masked man took flight. A search of the vicinities proved fruitless. Fifteen days later, in the middle of the night, while he was fast asleep, Mr. Yote was surprised by a masked man in his bedroom. He had entered while he was sleeping. He had said nothing. He had stood 
by the foot of his bed, staring at him, and had waited for him to awaken, solely by the mental disturbance of his silent thoughts. When he awoke, the masked man told him, I'm hungry. Mr. Yote was irritated, he thought to himself. I wish he were dead. And he thought, what shall I do with him? Then he thought, did he really fly away? He made scrambled eggs, but he would not eat them. He made him oatmeal porridge, but he would not eat it. He made him a sirloin steak, but he would not eat it. The masked man caped in his raven cloak, but without his famous feathered hat, slept sitting up in the kitchen chair. And as the sun rose, Mr. Yote turned off the gas lamp on the wall, and went back to bed, muttering to himself. When Yote awoke shortly after noon, he found the kitchen empty, and none of the plates of food that he had prepared had been eaten. He washed his dishes and went to the shop to open for business. Near closing time, a posse of horsed men rode by his door as he was locking up. The clatter of the horseshoes on the pavement rattled his windows. When he turned after drawing the shade on the window door, he found the masked man behind him. The masked man said, I'm tired. Going to the kitchen to make him coffee, Yote found seven mantel clocks on his kitchen table. Expensive mantel clocks, exotic mantel clocks, mantel clocks of silver, platinum, and gold, with Swiss jewels in their exposed works, with bells that chimed at several different times, each set to the hour at awkward interval. And below the clock face in the glass chamber of some of them spun tiered clusters of oppositely revolving golden balls, and below the clock face of others, from out of an ornate filigreed housing, at the stroke of hours came musically dancing twirling figures in procession, out of and returning into tiny hinged doors, and on some of the clock faces also tripped the tiny movements of a hand-painted lunar calendar, viewable in its phases by a crescent gauge cut into the pearly clock face. After he had made the coffee, he called the masked man, who did not answer. Going to look it for him, he found his cloak and hat upon the foot of his bed, and the masked man, still mass, sleeping within the clothing of his own bed. He thought to himself, I will kill him. And he thought, how did he steal those clocks? And then he thought, why did he choose to steal clocks? Not having another bed and not willing to sacrifice his own comfort, he joined him in the bed, but not until after he had carefully evaluated each clock, esteemed their monetary value, cataloged them for his stores, and put them all away for safekeeping. He found the masked man had not removed his boots. He thought, I will kill him. When he awoke in the middle of the night upon some sound or impulse, he found himself alone in bed. He did not look for the masked man. He thought, I will kill him. And he returned to sleep. Each day at closing, the posse dashed through the streets and alleys of the neighborhood, each day larger and more noisy and more menacing. Chickens were run over and mangled and had to be butchered. 
A dog was trampled and lamed, a child nearly so. Each day at closing, the masked man appeared in the shop, in the bed, in the kitchen, in the backyard or the cellar, and each day more mantel clocks were set upon the table. He had accumulated 236 mantel clocks. The masked man did not speak to him even when he was asked a direct question. Where did you get these clocks? Why do you steal clocks? Won't you please steal jewels or silverware or anything that can be smelted for precious metals or from which gems may be gleaned? These clocks, Yote protested. They were like works of art. They could be sold in his shop, but they could not be displayed. Exasperated, Yote thought, I will kill him. Yote, determined to make the most of what fortune had given him, considered that the quantity of the mantel clocks now amounted to considerable stock of remarkable quality, and that perhaps the better course was to wholesale them. And so he packaged them, and bore them by crates to the railhead, and shipped them to San Francisco, where he should mark them up for retail as new. Thinking to follow his goods, he returned home to recover his secret cache of jewels and cash, and to pack clothing and necessities, intending to leave his shop locked but abandoned forever. But he encountered the masked man upon opening his door. The masked man guessed what he was doing, or perhaps had followed him, and told him that he could not leave without him. This Yote could not bear. It was to escape him even more than to begin life anew that he had planned his venture. So he pushed the masked man out of the door, and because it was near the closing hour and the posse had gathered for its nightly vigilante, the masked man was spotted. He turned to face the posse, surrounded, spoke the fateful words that John Wilkes Booth had spoken upon his assassination of President Lincoln, was struck by a hail of gunfire, and shaking fitfully with that spray of bullets, died before he fell into the pool of his own blood on the paved street. The following day, Yote packed his clothing and necessities in carpet bags, and after partaking his breakfast and not washing up his dishes, he went to the door to meet the expressman who should bear these carpet bags to the train for him. But the knock at the door was not the presence of the expected expressman, but an unexpected expressman who handed him a package from the Emporium. He opened it. You can imagine the rest. There's something going to happen soon Some, some, something's going to happen soon I have a phone that doesn't ring A line that doesn't sting A letter never sent I have a dream where snowflakes fall Inside a painted hall Draw a book.
From High School Memorabilia, Black River Falls, Wisconsin. Class motto. We have reached the hills. The mountains lie beyond. Class of 1900.